and thank you for joining us on another episode of Why Theory. As always, I'm your host, Ryan Engley, joined, as always, by co-host Todd McGowan. Todd, how you doing, buddy? Hi, Ryan. Good to talk to you. Good to talk to you. And we are getting back straight in to Hegel's Phenomenology of Spirit. So this is picking up. Um, we've done two episodes, right? Two episodes yep, on this? two episodes. We, yeah. we did the preface, and then we did the uh, first section of Consciousness. Um, and that is where we will begin and pick up the thread uh, to go into the uh, third section, major section of the book, uh, being self-consciousness. And uh, just, Todd, do you want to reset where we are at? Because this is uh, like the aphorism series or like the Lacan seminars, or eventually we're going to try to do some of like Freud's papers. Uh, This is something we're going to pick up like every once in a while, so not like a straight through kind of mini series. So if uh, you were not there for the um, uh, preface, uh, episode which I think we did a while ago now. Yeah, I remember, yeah, I remember recording yeah. that in Rhode Island. So that's been that's been uh, over a year, I would say, uh, since we did that one. And uh, it's been some months since we did the previous one. So just to um, catch people up, maybe this is the first one they're listening to, or just to uh, refresh and also to reset our conversation and thoughts on the phenomenology. Sure. So we, I thought that one of the things we came to, which I really liked in the force and understanding section, which is the third and final section of the consciousness, larger part of the phenomenology. One of the things we came to was that in order to understand the world or the world of objects as divided or as contradictory, the self or the subject first has to grasp its own self as divided or as contradictory. And it's only through that understanding of itself that it can see division within the world of objects. And so that's the, that was, and I really liked this. This is the point that we got to and the, the, the way of understanding the transi- transition from consciousness mm-hmm. to self-consciousness. So, so that the idea for Hegel is that even in order to, when you're working out, force and understanding in this relationship between the way objects have a certain way that they appear and Mm -hmm. then a certain way that they are, which is the forces that are operating through them, that you can, in order to get to that point, you have to, you have to be a divided, you have to recognize the division or the contradiction within subjectivity itself. And thus you move from consciousness about objects to consciousness about the self or self-consciousness. So I think that's that's where we got to as a way to understand that transition. And transitions are, you know, someone has said their transitions are the bugbear mm. of, of Hegel's philosophy. And I think this is especially true in the phenomenology. So I really liked that we had that way of making sense of that transition, which has always been a, a tough one for people to to make sense of. So so then so then we get to self-consciousness, and this the self-consciousness section is really fascinating because there's this opening little salvo where he describes what self-consciousness does. Then there's the most famous part of the whole phenomenology, mm-hmm. the master-slave dialectic, which we're going to talk about quite a bit. We could probably devote a whole episode to that, but yes. we're not going to. <laughs> um, and then and then the and then the three, the development of the three, which sort of which mirrors the section of consciousness, that is stoicism, skepticism, unhappy consciousness. Right. It's interesting because that's not very long in the self-consciousness section. And it, 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 there's this preface material, which is the what we're going to talk about first, and then there's that. So that's really the actual development of self-consciousness. But, but I think first we'll focus on this 
initial salvo where mm-hmm. he describes what self-consciousness is. Yeah, that's super. And it also, just again to pull back to the previous episode, reading him in this way, I mean, in the way that we do, um, and to emphasize certain things like Hegel's own emphasis on uh, a divided subject being primary, uh, it's it like it makes it very clear the like the the connection that Hegel has to psychoanalysis. And it's just it's it's almost it almost seems impossible that the people didn't didn't read that that way the whole time or that like that Freud didn't say uh, he was indebted to Hegel. I think like um, uh, the more. I don't know. I feel like it's more general that he inherits Kant. I think he re- well, he references Kant more. Yeah. yeah in the, I mean, the I references. So there's two references to Hegel by Freud, yeah, right. and they're both mm-hmm. they're both really in footnotes, and they're very fleeting. And they're like ones that ones more about Marx and about how Hegel is important for Marx, and then the other one is is basically again just a kind of a note. And so, yeah, I think it's, especially when you read the beginning of this self-consciousness section, right, yes. because <laughs> he even says directly, self-consciousness is desire. So yeah. so the essence of self-consciousness is desire. So you're like, wait a minute, how did Freud not, how did that not play a crucial part in what Freud was doing? But it just didn't. I think it's, I don't think he's lying. Like, I think he's yeah. lying when he says, I didn't read Nietzsche. I think that's a lie. But I think... <laughs> You know, I but I because I mean, you can't say like I didn't. I had to stop reading Nietzsche because I knew he was going to say everything that I wanted to say, and I didn't want to become confused. Well, if you haven't already read him, how do you know? <laughs> how do you that know he's going to say what you want to say? So that's probably a lie, and yeah. it's fine. Whatever. I mean, <laughs> I think it's fine to lie about your antecedents like that. But but I think he's not lying when he says he didn't read Hegel, and I think that, or he doesn't even say it. No one even asks him. Mm-hmm. Um, but but I think God, it's really, and this is why I think Lacan, you know, comes along and then really takes up, especially this point in Hegel, the master-slave dialectic and what comes just before it is a, is crucial for Lacan's development. So I think that's where you can really see the impact of Hegel on psychoanalysis. Yeah, I mean, like just here's a um, here's hold on a second. I have my book in front of me. I got a little bit farther away from the mic than I try to be. Um, here's a tasty line. Uh, this is from 118 in the Miller, um, in the Miller translation. Desire has reserved to itself the pure negating of the object and thereby its unalloyed feeling of self. But that is the reason why the satisfaction is itself only a fleeting one, for it lacks the side of objectivity and permanence. <laughs> and I mean, I could, I'll just, could keep going, but I'm just going to stop there. Desire, lack, negativity, the like, it, it just... Uh, it's it's very it's just hard. It's hard to get to get away from uh, the the like the clear what would become the you know named as the psychoanalytic bent. But like I mean, th- this is just Hegel is thinking very uh, like on a different plane from Kant, which is like you know which is sort of the point. Like so, like just to uh, this is a very like quick but important difference, and like I. We were talking about this as we were prepping for the show that, you know, um, just very, very quickly, if people have no familiarity, like Kant finds antinomies of reason, like contradictions, and then, you know, there's a problem. Right. Hegel finds contradiction, what Kant would call antinomies of reason, and says, like, this is this is it. This is this this is this is not this is not a problem to be solved. This is this is ontology as such. And when you start thinking in that way. It's just 
pretty fascinating that it leads one down the path of looking at desire and lack and negation in the way that uh, psychoanalysis would uh, later. And, right. uh, and it just, and it, and, and, and you see it, it's, it, you know, the, and, and of course, Hegel doesn't call it the master slave dialectic, which is a thing like that's, that's a Kojev. We're going to talk about that a little bit, but, but but yeah, but that's the most famous thing from this section, but it's just like, it's kind of, if, when, when you focus on that and you miss this, like this little, little preface to it, um, you, 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 I don't know, in in a sense, a lot, I think you kind of missed the ball game. Yeah, Yeah. I really think so too. Yeah. Yeah. I think you're right. It's so important. I think what you said is really great because, and that line you read is just amazing, right? Because, Mm -hmm. And I and, and I think you're so what you said about the difference between Kant and Hegel I think is exactly right that that what for fail or for Kant is failure is for Hegel success right mm-hmm. like that to me would be success he says to <laughs> Kant and uh, <laughs> quoting the pretenders I think uh, um, but anyway uh, nice. uh, but anyway I think his but I think the thing that you read isn't it striking that for Kant knowledge is concerned with objects and that's mm-hmm. all he thinks about like his mm-hmm. all that he the whole critique of pure reason is about the knowing subject and how it relates to objects. And Mm -hmm. Hegel comes along in this second major section of the phenomenology and says, wait a minute, no, the way we relate to objects can never be satisfying for us. So Mm -hmm. to understand how we relate to objects, first we have to understand how we relate to the other. And Mm -hmm. I think that's like you could almost say that just in that passage you just read, like there's the Hegelian revolution in a nutshell, right? Like that, yeah. like no longer are we just going to pay attention to my relation as an individual to objects. You just can't take that as the point of departure. Instead, you've got to think first about how I relate to the other and then think about the object through my the mediation of my relation to the other. And I think that's what he really is getting at here. And so, so the, and then, then also what that line you read, just it's, the richness of it is amazing because the other point of it is that the object can't be satisfying for the subject or it offers right. just a fleeting satisfaction. Right. And, and, and just to, to speak in psychoanalytic terms, right, isn't he here exploring the difference between pleasure and enjoyment, right? Like yeah. you can get this fleeting pleasure Mm-hmm. from the object, but in order to get genuine, lasting satisfaction or enjoyment, you have to have, and this is, he doesn't say this in that line you read, but this is what he's coming to, you have to have the, the mediation of the other, you have to be relating to another self-consciousness, because, and I, isn't this, well, I don't know, maybe we can, let's just, <laughs> I'll just leave it there and have you react, because I have a whole other thing I want to go to, so... Uh, yeah, a, a shout out is is uh, deserved to the listener who first suggested this. This is Sean King in Dublin. Hey, Sean. Um, so yeah, we'll we'll have to get we'll have to get on that. But yeah, this is. I mean, I think that that's if if one knows the Water Boys hold the moon, uh, which may be the greatest song of all time. It's not. I mean, but it could be. I mean, it it's isn't. Good, but yeah. it, it very yeah. well could be. I mean, it's yeah. not. But it but it, it could be. If one knows that song, I think that you you can you can see this relationship the way that we're coming at it. This is a relationship between Kant and Hegel. So I find that interesting. So um, what what you said before I went on the like the uh, the, the 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 Water Boys um, little mini tangent is. Uh, the relation of one self-consciousness to another and depending on this, like this, this relationship to, to another and that an, an object is only as it is for another. Um, I, I think, well, I don't know. Is this too, is it too, <laughs> is it too much to, 
it's too quick to say anything about this because th- this is I, the, the the crux of the the Lord and, and Bondsman. Right, thing. right, it, right. Is, yeah. it, 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 it com- completely, it's om- I, I would almost make the argument like if that, because um, I know that's a much bigger section and I, I think sometimes, you know, we've talked about um, uh, collections and uh, like, you know, uh, edited collections and things like that, like uh, and, and big like uh, literary, literary and cultural theory readers is sometimes they cut, they just go right to the Lord and Bondsman section. And I actually think, I think they all do. I think they they all all do. do. I don't think anybody includes this first part of of self-conscious. Right. Right. And if you, I I think this explains what he's about to say. And it's, so it's really, um, I don't know. It's, it's, it's a, it's a shame to, to, to have this go missing. And I I think that's part of the, part of the reason what maybe why that's, it's like widely um, like misunderstood because it seems if you come at, and I don't want to get into, well, okay, let's just start talking about it because let's just, I want to say one last thing about this first part before you, are you going to jump to the master slave? No, 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 you know, please, please one one more, one more thing. No, because I just think it's, I think it's really important. And and I think the way that we're positioning it is like this, um, like, Obviously, Hegel has, like almost all the people that we talk about in this podcast, has the the reputation for being very, very, uh, like just unapproachable and impenetrable. And what we, you know, always try to do is like to try to file it down to like the one thing that's like a key that can get you to the other things. And in a way that is not like reductive or flattening. And so like this section is re is is a, a like a rich opportunity for that because it has these lines on again the, the about desire and lack and negativity and the relation of like of, of self to object coming from a previous section that's very hard to read that is all about a split in the self being a being necessary to um apprehend objects at all otherwise right. they would just all seem the same Right. You know, like like every object would seem like any other object. There'd be no there'd be no uh, there'd, there'd be no I don't, I don't want to use the word difference, but just, you know, in a common sense, not in a philosophical one. There'd just be no difference between them. Uh, and all of that, it, it, this is like like a huge justification for the approach that, you know, that Slavoj Zizek famously like was like kind of first struck by and and in the the book um in the sublime object of ideology which you know which made this connection uh very very clear and now it just kind of seems i think we said this in a previous podcast it, it just seems unavoidable it just seems like this right. is how you read hegel is like you 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 find these lines and like the, these these lines and these ideas this is the this is the through line um is picking up on on these threads on like again on on desire and it's it's fleetingness um and and looking at how he is thinking about pleasure and subjectivity as the split thing that uh that depends on an other and you can even start to see in lacan the 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 the, the way that he understands the social you right, know right, and and, and right. this in the symbolic so anyway the, um yeah so this I do think it's it's worth uh, like what whatever whatever you're about to say on on this little introductory section. I'm sure that like it's it, it's fully justified. Okay, okay. Yes. So what I, here's what I was going to say that I think yeah. that that the, the 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 okay. So the object, his point is that if you if the subject goes to negate the object, right? That it, mm-hmm. it, it there's just a fleetingness because the object just is there to be negated, right? It can be easily mm-hmm. negated, like you eat the apple, right? And so it's gone, mm-hmm. and so. What what it lacks, and th- I find this so fascinating, and I think this is clear in this section. Although, <laughs> as, you, as you point out, it's not a, nothing's exactly clear here. <laughs> but it, but it, once you've read it a few times, I think it's clear that 
his idea is that this other subject, the other self-consciousness, negates mm -hmm. itself. And it's yeah. that, precisely that self-negating, that allows the subject to find a satisfactory relationship of desire with mm -hmm. that other self-consciousness. That it's only insofar as there's the negation within the other that there is this relationship of satisfaction. And it's the neg what's being negated, and I think this is really another fascinating thing, that's what's being negated by the other self-consciousness is precisely life. This, mm -hmm. this, that self-consciousness mm -hmm. proves that it is a self-consciousness through this distancing or sacrifice mm -hmm. or negation of its life. And so that it has this contradiction within it, that it is a living being, and it's also negating its or showing itself as distinct from this life that it's tied to, right? So that's the, and for him, for Hegel, that's the initial gesture of subjectivity, this, this self-sacrifice of the, not killing yourself, but just this, this negation of life, this detachment from your life. And that's what uh, ordinary objects are unable to do. And so that's why they can't be desired in the same way. And so I think that understanding the role that negation plays mm. in desire is just crucial for him right here because, and then that, sh then we get, that leads right into, I think the, the, the master slave dialectic. Um, yes, it does. And it was, that's a great segue, but, and I'm going to not let us do that because I want to say just to, 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 to hammer on this, isn't this why, like, this would why, another like just another connection between Hegel and, and psychoanalysis is that like this keeps desire in perpetuity, right? Right. Like, it, yes, like it, yes. it's, it's why like it keeps reproducing itself because for, for, for Hegel, um, de, for Hegel desire never achieves the object. Right. And, and you could, I mean, you could look at that too. Um, I think he says this in this section, right? Like um, the broader, not the preface, but in the broader section that, or at least I don't know if he says it clearly or, or it's a, a consequence of it, that there's no, like there's no like in itself for itself kind of thing right. For, right. for Hegel. It's, it's like in the, in the way that it is for, for Kant. And so like, um, because for just in the, and I don't know that, that necessarily Kant says this, but like for the idea that there are like, that it's, it's a, there's an object in itself, like it kind of, it says that there, like you, one could achieve the object. You know, right. like, like right. There, there's right. that right. There, there's that implicitness to it that like, well, like the like the object is, is self-realized and, and we but and we can realize the object. Right. And, and you know, right. that and, is and, and, that's clearly yeah. the implication of Kant's position. Right. Yeah. 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 And that and this is another just like a clear line of demarcation for for Hegel is that like you, you desire like there there is not desire never achieves the object, which I don't think makes the object hysterical i think like it's this is why in the previous section like uh, we are we are split and objects are split and, and there, it's that actual like it's that um that commonality or right or, right uh, yeah, or, yeah, or yeah homology yeah. But, that that makes it that that makes it, apprehending it at all as such a possibility right but 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 right but you can only find that and isn't he saying though that you can only find that object that you cannot obtain within another subject, right? Like that's yeah, the, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's and nice. that's mm -hmm. the interesting twist. And, and, and you can find it precisely because of this self negating aspect of subjectivity, that that's mm -hmm. what makes desire perpetual is that the object is always fleeing from you, right? <laughs> <laughs> because it's attached to this other self consciousness. And I think that's really, and, and this is why ordinary objects are for him just 
they they just can be cast aside because you can easily get them and then just toss them. Except insofar as those ordinary objects are mediated by another self-consciousness and then they cease to be just ordinary objects, right? Like that's, so So in that way, like a new car can function. It's not just, you know, it's not just like an object because it, you, you get it and then you're still, there's still this negating of the car itself because mm-hmm. other subjects are involved in the, in, the, in the formation of that object, right? So it's not just, so once you understand the way in which all objects are mediated by other subjects, then, then for Hegel, I think, then, then all subjects are, have, are subject to the, I mean, all, sorry, all objects are, are subjected to that same kind of split and that self-negation, mm-hmm. and which mm-hmm. an object considered outside of another subject isn't, right? And that's what we got to at the end of the, of the consciousness section. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And this now I'll allow us to move on. I mean, but this is the reason why I, why we don't do, um, like master slave by itself because you you've lost all this all right this and then I, don't you yeah. think that if you do it by itself you get this idea that you get the idea that we're our basic relationship to the other is struggle mm-hmm. and you're t- trying to negate the other mm-hmm. and the result of that struggle is one side gives in the other doesn't and mm-hmm. then that's the the master slave dialectic is born but that's such mm-hmm. a Hobbesian liberal conception. Yeah. I mean, Hobbes isn't a liberal, but whatever, conservative liberal um, conception of of the way in which subjectivity is functioned is totally antithetical to how Hegel thinks. He doesn't think we're caught up in some basic struggle, right? Like right. that. Just that. Just would be that would be that would be a total anathema to him. Yeah, that's fascinating. I mean, like, and it, and it is the um uh, the is the thing that I'd like to emphasize right is like the like the framing of something the like how just like the form of it if you excise this if this is what you know then that of course that's what he's saying because there's nothing you've got nothing before it that it anticipates him saying anything about this and just by itself you start you think about he does talk about the um the dialectic of well and this is although this is kind of interesting he does talk about the um the dialectic of uh, specifically as negativity in the in the in the section but but then what what does that negativity mean you know what i mean like just by itself you've taken this section without any of the um the the materials leading up to it and like the the negativity in that relationship seems it just it seems different it doesn't seem to correspond to a like a fundamental negativity like a fundamental right. split it, it seems like the the master negates the slave in like a common sense right, right? because and, isn't and, the yeah. point that it's the self like it's the subject self-negation yeah that's always at work and that's what constitutes the subject as a subject so that's why negation is so crucial for hegel mm-hmm. like negation and contradiction i think are always wrapped up together mm-hmm. um but i think yeah i think that's a really great point that it's not just the master negating the slave instead it's how it's like so it's it's this struggle emerges through the process of negation and to see which which negation actually trumps the other right like and which Mm -hmm. and where you find the essence of subjectivity so that you get this confrontation between two different 
negations. And then mm-hmm. it's a question of how, which negation is going to have primacy. And I think that's a, like, if you think about it that way, or, or you might put it this way, like, which contradiction is going to be the one that's re- the most, is revelatory, is essential. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think if you think of it that way, then it gets out of this whole like primal struggle kind of business, really, right? Like because it's about mm-hmm. the self negativity, the self negation, and which self negation really is the one that's going to be seen as the will be essential. I think that's what he's trying to get at. Like you, you have these two subjects confronting each other, and and then what's this? How, how do you know what is essential in that? confrontation because you have two subjects you can't decide between the two mm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. this oh this is awesome and i think I, so could, could we do like a little brief history of why again it's it's in the book if you have miller it's not you'll notice a conspicuous lack of phrasing such as master or slave because it is uh lordship and bondage lordship and bondage. Uh, <laughs> yeah. yeah i mean bondage is maybe infelicitous but um yeah yeah, yeah. but yeah. I, you know uh, so pinkard in the new translation it's master and servant which i think is good yeah i think okay. that's fine so the the terms in german are hair and connect mm-hmm. and and connect is just means servant it doesn't so so german has sklaverei it has it has slave right that mm-hmm. so that so if hegel wanted to use that term he could use it mm-hmm. and the and the and hair would be like a lord is probably the right you know, like an English lord, or but but even you know Hegel was Herr Hegel even to his wife, so <laughs> so he could he could you know Herr would be okay. I mean, it doesn't seem. It, in other words, it doesn't have the same kind of like implication of master and slave, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, and that is that's important. And so we get there because uh, prim- prim- uh, primarily, and we're I think planning to do an episode on Kojev, so just we're not going to talk too much about him, but his lectures. On uh, on the phenomenology are so big for a, a lot of the stuff we talk about on this right. podcast for the entire twentieth century. I think it's yeah. fair to like you could easily say he's the most important thinker in the twentieth century. I think like it's him, Heidegger, Lukács, or Wittgenstein, right? Like one mm-hmm. of those four. So it's I think he because re- his impact is so incredible among mm. all these French intellectuals, even though he didn't really write a book. You know? Yeah, no, that, that is what's fascinating about it. It's like yeah. a real, it's a, a real economy of impact, right? Because yeah. it's, it's, you know, he's the, I mean, now it's, it's hard to get out of the music thing. Right. But like, he's, he, it's like he had one album, right. Right. But it's like, yeah. it's like, he's, um, uh, well, it's also a bootleg album. Right? It's also a bootleg. I was just going to say, is like, right. he's like this, he's the sex pistols or something like that. Right. Like, right. right. Like it's just right. the one, it's just like the one album. Yeah. Uh, or the bootleg. Who is it that just has the... I don't know. I'll have to do... I'll, I'll think in the background on that one. Yeah, think um, of who's only has a bootleg <laughs> album. That would be... That's right up your alley, though. You should, that is right up my alley. No, what would it be like... It'd be like if only... Um, the only thing that existed from uh, Bob Dylan was the things that he did with the band, right? The, um, right, the music, right, you know, um, right. Yeah, anyway, the basement yeah. tapes, but whatever. Um, the Yeah, that's tricky. Yeah, that and, is up and, my alley. And I gotta Raymond Kano is the guy who p- brought all those lectures together and then published them maybe like 15 years after they were... They were okay. given, but he uses the term metra and esclave, the French words for master and slave. And so that that's what you're getting to. That's what yes. really, that's what shaped the entire way of talking about this section. I mean, he also made it central. He made it, he mm-hmm. interpreted the entire phenomenology through this section. And what's also, what's also interesting is I think even people that don't like him, like Robert Pippin, who I think is one of the top, you know, three, four, five Hegel scholars living, uh, I think he's 
it's interesting because even Pippin, and all, there's a lot of thinkers, Hegelians, that, that do this, that he takes mutual recognition as the mm. political ideal that Hegel's working towards. And and they really find mutual recognition in this section through yeah. its failure, right? Like, that's the whole mm-hmm. point. Like, the, taking up these attitudes of master and slave fail to get to mutual recognition, but that's the ideal that they see implicit here because... You know, Hegel does start this section talking about recognition, and mm-hmm. that the and that the, what you're striving for through desire is is for recognition. Mm. That's excellent. So it's another way. Where, well, well, I mean, that's a, well, from Pippin. That's like a very Hegelian take, right? Where like that you the the tension that you put on Kozhev's reading is that that's a uh, that that's a failure, but that that shows the you know the mutual uh, recognition. Like it, it, I don't know. Like that, that 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 seems very much like in line with when right. we set up when we set up reading when we set up reading um, the phenomenology in the first place. Like going back to the to the preface, right? Like like this like wrong understanding. Like I don't know. It's it's a right it's that a, you can find in the wrong understanding the right one. Right? Like yeah. you just you yeah. just invert it or whatever you do. You find the truth out of the out of the mistake. I think that yeah. I think you're exactly right that that's what he's doing. Although you know, isn't the problem that 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 the final point of Hegel's philosophy is always the point that he thinks is the, he, he, he saves the best for last, right? Like the <laughs> end is what he thinks is the point of his thought. And so to find the political ideal buried here, middle. like yeah. toward the beginning of the book seems like a bizarre, I mean, look, Pippin yeah. would say, Oh, I didn't find it there. I found it in the, you know, in the philosophy of spirit later on, but, but okay, maybe, but the, this is the point where it, it really, I think the rubber hits the road with that ideal. And I also think it, what's interesting about Hegel's, even there, it's not at the end. So that's a, that's a whole other problem. But, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but I think what's interesting about recognition for Hegel is that it, it never is mutual, right? It always, I mean, his whole yeah. point in this section is that it always, once you're in this recognition game, you're always going to fail. Like you're always, you're never going to have it work out once you're committed to this ideal of recognition. It's because that's the way, like recognition is a way to stop this struggle of desires and mm-hmm. of different, two different self-consciousnesses if you could just attain this, some kind of mutual recognition. But he sees that it just goes awry. I mean, that's the whole, I would say in a way, that's the whole point of this section. Hmm. That's no, that's super good. So let's well, can, let's can we play this out? Yeah, yeah. Let's let's, you know, because play. this is this is what's at, this is what's at stake. It's not. Um, and I also I just like a quick comment. I I, I also think the um, the excising of this section or making this section most important, um, in the way that Kozhev does. I mean, there, there's also the Deridian twist too, right? Where like because Derrida has this understanding of where of like. He flips it where, like, this is an example of. I was just thinking about the the Hobbesian point you made, where, like, where it's actually on the. I'm gonna from now on. I'm gonna just. I'm gonna say servant instead of instead of yeah. slave. Yeah. Because we're gonna talk about the section. So, yeah. like, it's the. It's actually the servant who is in the power position, because, like, I think that's the Deridian take. Because, like, the like the 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 lord is dependent upon the servant for the idea of being Lord at all. And so actually like the proper reading of this, I'm going to say dynamic and not dialectic. The Mm -hmm. proper reading of this dynamic is how the, uh, the, the supposed, the supposed uh, uh, like person in the, in position of power uh, relies on the the person in the the position of weakness. I think that's like, 
a Deridian consequence of of Kojev put, positioning this as the thing, and then you know, like that being an understanding, like like that's I don't know, like that, that's an, an idea that is out there that 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 I have encountered in in scholarship as, as yeah, yeah. Like, I mean, well, I think that's just straight Kojev's idea, right? Yeah. I think that's yeah. his reading of it. Like he says famously, mastery is an existential impasse, right? And so. Mm-hmm. But I, I mean, I, I'm not sure that that reading, you think that reading's wrong? Like, I don't no, think that No, re- well, I don't. I think it's, I think it, um, no, I don't think it's wrong. I just think it's a piece, right? Right. Be- right. Because it, it, like, it, it, I think it, um, I think it sees the crescent and it misses the whole of the moon, like, right, to, to right. go back to that. Like, like, so yeah. it's like, th- that's certainly a, a, a part of this because, um, not to like to skip to the end, but like the, the, what, you know, one, one of Hegel's points is that the, the Lord, the Lord needs the recognition. It's it just what it misses is this, I guess, is that the Lord needs the recognition from the servant, but because the Lord has subjugated the servant to like the position of object, that recognition doesn't mean anything anymore. It doesn't mean anything, right? And that yeah. is the key thing, right? Yeah. Okay, so let's yeah. start with the yeah. the life and death struggle, right? So, sure. so, so, why the life and death struggle? Because Hegel's whole point is self consciousness proves itself as a self consciousness through this disdain for natural life. So it can't... So the idea is that you Mm -hmm. cannot be dependent... Like, to be a subject is to refuse any dependency, even dependency on life itself, right? And Mm -hmm. so that's how... So that's how he gets the idea that this life and death struggle is a... is emerges through subjectivity itself Mm -hmm. and through Mm -hmm. the relation of one self-consciousness to another self-consciousness, right? So that's the idea, that you prove... You're you're attempting to prove that you're independent of life. You're not dependent on life, and I think mm-hmm. that's so. That's interesting. So this risk, to this this ability to say like my life is inessential, right? It's not. That's not who I am. Like I'm something else than that. Is and it, it, it's a way of Hegel thinks destroying everything that's external to the self or making it worthless and making mm-hmm. the self. So so that. That involves killing the other, he thinks, like mm-hmm. making this other also worthless. And so this struggle for him really is the the way of of affirming subjectivity, but then it goes awry, right? Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Absolutely. Yeah. Um like because it's the the, the um the so how how would you, how would you say it? The other, well, I would the other, say it the other exists. Oh no, sorry. I just want to go ahead because the, the other exists as a as a self, like an like as an external self. So it's, it must be destroyed. But, yeah, yeah. But, but then, then, but the problem is, if you destroy the other, you're you don't preserve exactly what you wanted from the other, yeah. right? Like you yeah, you right, end up right. destroying the other totally, mm-hmm. and then you lose this the need, the thing that you were seeking the other, the recognition that you were seeking from the other self-consciousness, right? The recognition that you are an essential self-consciousness yourself. So that's how, that's how this is self-defeating. So, so Mm -hmm. what, what, what could be, what you're seeking is what Hegel would call a determinate negation, like a negation Mm -hmm. that actually affirms yourself as subject. But what happens is it's just an abstract negation. It just negates that other subject by killing it. Mm-hmm. And you've proved yourself independent of life through the struggle, but there's no one to recognize your independence, right? So mm-hmm. the very thing that you're seeking, you destroy by destroying the other. So that's the, I think, so the negation, I think what's interesting about that life and death struggle, it's a failure of negation, right? It's a, it's negation doesn't 
preserve at the same time that it negates. And that's really, mm. you know, that crucial, that term, that German term, Aufhebung, translated, right. all, I think, always as sublation, right. that that, you know, it preserves, it uplifts, and it negates. That that the killing of the other just negates. There's no right. uplifting or perver- preserving. Well, that's, well, that's, I feel like we talk about this movie uh, a lot. That's a, but killing you, of course, killing you is killing myself, but I'm getting pretty tired of the both of us. Yeah. Right. Yeah. You know, the lady of Shang, uh, lady from Shanghai. Like, yeah. Yeah. Just, yeah. Right. That's just, that's just, just, just abstract negation. Abstract right? negation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Excellent. That's good. So it can't, so it's, it'd be interesting to think, do we have a filmic example of, the mm. kind of the recognition that you negate the other while still preserving the other. I mean, that would be in, you know, I, I, I think that's mm. the kind of thing uh, we don't see. I, it seems rarer, but I think you're right. The lady from Shanghai is an example of the abstract negation for sure. So it would be, so what we'd be looking at would be like, so you're effacing something and in, in the moment of that, uh, erasure, it's lifted up. Is that yeah. the end of the dark Knight rises? Tom McGowan? Maybe. So that is because, yeah. So it's like the, the, he goes out to, we think to kill himself, right. To drop the atomic bomb and to die mm-hmm. with it. Cause the autopilot mm-hmm. hasn't been fixed, but then we learn it's mysteriously been fixed. So mm-hmm. he negates himself and then is able to preserve something through maybe, maybe that's yeah. an interesting example. And then, yeah. and then, yeah. and then it, cause it ends with uh, the Joseph Gordon Levitt character literally being ri- like risen up. Like, so it's the play on right. rise, but it also, if you're thinking about it in this, Hegelian context, it maybe it has the 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 force of the um, of sublation of like this. Yeah, so it wouldn't even matter that Batman necessarily survives. The point is that the rising up of this other figure of of uh, yeah of Nightwing or or that sort or whatever. Of right, yeah, right, right, yeah. right, right. Yeah, anyway, yeah, that was, that's interesting. Yeah, so I I like that film actually. I, nobody does, but I kind of <laughs> I kind of do. Um, it was the first I, I think years the, I ever read. I don't know if you know that. What's that? That's, That's the first, the first thing first... years I ever read. Yeah. Wow. Wow. Yeah. I I like uh, the thing I like. I this is in the essay that I like Bane quite a bit. I think he's. Uh, I think he's well, pretty g- great as a villain. Yeah, Gotham is yours, baby. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm not even. I'm, I'm not even going to try. Put my hand over my mouth and 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 do uh, Tom Hardy on that. So okay. The um. So. I think that like one of the, uh, the the a word that's really really good that you used and I, and it's important because you um. It's a, a and and to take it out of its 2020 context, like or actually wait a minute, maybe this is the same. Um, we're we're looking at when we when we're talking about this kind of negation, it's a cancellation, right? That doesn't have the very very crucial uh, force of of like of, of raising something else, of, right. of 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 facing something to raise it up. That's right. that's negation, right. and I think it's important. Cause I think you get into this trap. I don't, I don't, th- and this may, this might just be like personal particular to me, but, I, but I, um, I don't like, uh, doing like, well, that's not real negation. This is the pure negation. Even if that's like Hegel's term, like I like the separate words, like, yeah. like, like the, the one thing is, is, is to cancel and it's not preserved. And then, you know, I mean, it, right. Th- that's, uh, um, abstract negation, right? Or, right, 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 right. And right. then, and then there's determinate. Neg- and I, I prefer like nope. One's canceling, and then negation is yeah, the, yeah, yeah, yeah. The that's act good. Of of, yeah. of 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 crossing, yeah, of crossing up to mark something to like to 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 be able to raise it up. So yeah, so yeah. That, yeah, yeah. And so I think that that's what happens. That that 
determinant negation or that that preserving and and transcending and and uplifting is what happens in the formation of the master-slave dialectic. So the other Mm -hmm. isn't just X'd off. The other is preserved. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the crucial thing. And then that relationship develops. And I think that... It's interesting how much of an impact that relationship has had on the way people think about Mm. every kind of relationship. So Jean-Paul Sartre in Being a Nothingness has this whole chapter called Concrete Relations with Others, and it's based Mm -hmm. just totally on how Hegel Mm -hmm. sees the master-slave relationship working. And Sartre talks about love in this way, like love is like if if the other becomes totally just gives in to you totally, you you fall out of love, so you need mm-hmm. this kind of resistance. It's, that's pretty interesting. But the point mm-hmm. here is that, this, that the servant, if the servant completely uh, negates her himself for the sake of the master, that, for the rec- and, and then gives this recognition, mm-hmm. that, that, that in that, because of the submission, mm-hmm. the consciousness of the servant becomes the inessential, and thus, the recognition of the master gets is totally undercut. And this is what you were saying in your critique of that Kojevian Derridian yeah. position of this celebration of the of the lower position, because right, right, right. the whole mm-hmm. point is that the 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 recognition that the master gets is, is worthless because yeah. it comes from someone that's not worthy in the master's mind of giving any kind of recognition at all. Right, and also that that position it, it's like it's fixed too. Like there's only one result. Of, of, of this and it's this and it's and also it, like it relies on imbalance of power and like the and and that that it's, it's so crucial for for Derrida you know that's a, that's his whole thing right like like um absence instead of presence supplement right, instead right. of like the thing itself right, right? like right. that's um that's the kind of like the whole thing there but but the I think in um I think in Hegel like in in actually in like reading the section and like in its full context I think you find like a more the 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 dialectic I, I i the dialectic doesn't stop like it's more vibrant than like right. it has right. this like this this one this one ending where we're where actually what i'm going to do is uplift the person in w- who would seem to be in the position of of absence rather than the position of presence i think that like like i think if i'm being fair to derrida like i think he's doing like a hegelian thing but he's putting the emphasis on the on what 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 i think is like the is is the wrong spot because right. i think you get a more it, it's it's a more um it's, it's more provocative and, and, and to, to like work it through the way that like the way that Hegel's doing it. So like, just like to, to kind of play this out, the servant works on stuff, right? Right. On stuff, like right. on, on tasks, whatever. And makes sense. Uh, yes. Yes. And that's a canceling, right? Like we would right, say, right. Okay. Right. So, okay. so yeah, so that's the key thing, right? So the, so Hegel stresses, and this is why it's so important for Marx, right? Like, like the 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 servant or slave comes to a kind of independent self consciousness through work, right? Mm-hmm. And so that's, mm-hmm. a, I mean, that's yeah. the labor theory of value, right? Like right, that's right, the right, right. that's the. I mean, although I mean, interesting. So Adam Smith, Hegel had read Adam Smith, so I think there is maybe some of Adam Smith and the labor theory of value in this. Um, so anyway, so so he so that's one part of it. But what mm-hmm. I think is so fascinating and what Marx doesn't deal with at all mm-hmm. is Hegel's emphasis on the dread that the servant mm-hmm. has to feel. That this, so the, the initial struggle when the servant gives in, the servant gives in because this dread of losing life. And then initially Hegel says, well, this, this shows this really radical independence of the master. But mm-hmm. then it turns out, 
well, that's not really the superior position at all. That that's actually stupid. That the dread that the slave or servant feels in the face of possible annihilation or, or sure annihilation, that really is a correct understanding of the nature of subjectivity, that it actually is dependent on life and that without life, your subjectivity is nothing. And so that dread, Hegel thinks, is the that's really the driving thing that allows the the servant to come to a self-consciousness that the master figure cannot come to. And I I love that idea. I love Mm -hmm. that it's the combination of dread and then labor that make, that bring, that, that, that really is the source of freedom. I think that's what Hegel thinks that, you know, that those two things bring brought together is freedom. Isn't this confirmed by the, trope of conservatives railing against the enjoyment of the poor because like the 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 specter of the homeless person with a cell phone like a like a smartphone like the like the the idea of like someone earning like minimum wage but like going out to eat or just like having any kind of like shred of uh and as hegel might say like an independent consciousness like just the raw offensiveness of that, yeah. like, like, how can you have this thing? You're, you're, like, you, you're, like, you are achieving something that, that, that I don't see how that's this should even be allowed. So, r- like, like, r- how are you not further bound by these circumstances? And and I and I and I, I anyway, I, I just think that's a it's a very it's a far-reaching idea, and and you can kind of. You, you, I don't know, I, I, that, that I see as a, as a contemporary confirmation of the radicality of, of the, that kind of, like, you know, independent consciousness that, like, of, like, through, through dread and labor, through, like, the, like, this, this fear of annihilation. And then I think that, like, where, where does this become further emancipatory is that, like, well, this, you collectivize this, right? Right, like right, right. And that's Marx, right? Like, that's, yes, I think, yes. yeah, I think that's really, it's, it's fascinating and you know this this notion that through working on something mm-hmm. you transform things into my products i mean that's again that's just i mean that mm-hmm. i think marx actually takes from that that's the essence of of us as a species being is our productiveness you know and mm-hmm. so so i think that it's it's just this the, the richness of this Part, but Marx, interestingly, I think, leaves out the absolute dread, right? Like, mm. dread doesn't really play a part in Marx's thinking, I think, in uh, so much the worse. Like, I think that this is really a, you know, the, I mean, it, I think it's, I think no one really, inclusive of Hegel, has really thought through exactly why those two things have to come together, that dread mm-hmm. and labor. Like, Hegel just sort of sets them side by side and yeah. says they're both necessary. And that's weird because, he never just talks about two things that are just there separate, you know, like, like yeah. he always thinks of them, thinks of two things as linked or as contradictory or, but here he doesn't. So I think that's, I've always thought this is really a, a place where somebody needs to really talk and, and explain Hegel to him, to Hegel, like yeah. what you mean, like, why is it that, is it the case that, that dread actually leads to labor or what's holding those two things together other than, the the figure of the master. I mean, that's what holds them together because the master master is the threat of death, and the master is the one who demands labor. But but mm-hmm. how do those two things you know jibe logically? I think that's a, 
that's a question. Yeah, I mean, like, isn't this like? I, I mean, I don't know. The easy answer is probably like this is where this is this is where Hegel needs psychoanalysis, and and also like, and I, I mean, it makes sense to me that it makes sense to me that Marx doesn't include this because he is, I think of I think he's farther away from including like a notion of the of the psychoanalytic subject than than Hegel is. Like, I think Hegel is much closer. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Um, and so like it, it's, I don't, again, I don't know that, that con like it's obviously consciously Marx isn't like, Oh, I'm not going to include, I'm not going to include that because then my notion of subjectivity has to change completely. But I don't know, but maybe, maybe, uh, yeah, maybe. I know. mean, you know, and what's interesting is that, that, that feeling of absolute dread, right? Like that, what's great about that for Hegel is that it allows this negation. Like you're no longer just negating the external. You're mm -hmm. also negating the internal and that's yeah. why labor alone contra marx doesn't mm -hmm. get the job done in yeah. emancipating the subject right because this th that the subject always has to be also self-negating so i think mm -hmm. that's the connection between the two right like the absolute dread leads to this internal negation and labor is the way in which you're negating externally so that's the way in which it comes together for mm -hmm. subjectivity and i think that's you know that and for Hegel, this means this marks, I think, then the turn to Stoicism, right? Like then mm -hmm. through Stoicism, through this internal negation and seeing that it's really inter internal where the struggle lies, that that's what produces Stoicism. And Hegel reads the, the move to Stoicism as the result, in a sense, of the slave's victory in this mm. master-servant struggle, right? Like that's the... Like it's 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 the servant who comes out on top, and and I think that's where, of course, that's influential on Marx. But I think mm -hmm. that for Hegel is a really crucial thing, and the way that it it moves into Stoicism and this idea of the independence of thought. Okay, right, and so then this is removed wholly from the object, right? Right. Like right, and and right. okay, so there's a. There's an isolate. It's really, I think it's, it's really interesting, like the just the trajectory of of how Hegel goes about proving the because this is the whole. I mean, I I, I was saying this to you um, about uh, something else, but like, or maybe we mentioned it before, but but Hegel is not like this. Isn't Hegel doesn't think he's doing Hegelian philosophy. Right. He thinks he thinks this is how thought and subjectivity works. I'm just telling you about it. I'm just telling you. Right. I'm just telling you. It's like some, it's like I, I've had this reaction when like, uh, sometimes if I'll do, uh, if, if I'll do, I have a grading option on a paper where a student will like make like a, like a mini presentation to like, to like, to me, like in my office or like a zoom office. And then I'll like, we'll have another meeting where I'll do like the grade and go through it. And if I give them, if, if, if the, 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 presentation earns right like a good grade they always like usually they say thank you and i'm like look i'm not i didn't give this to you i was like you did this and i'm telling you about it like that's right. how right. that's how this works like right. and and you know like to try to take myself out of it which is you know maybe not possible but 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 that's <laughs> that's just me in that moment as a teacher but this is this is hegel's whole thing right is that look right. i'm i am just i am telling you how this works and here this is my evidence and this is how i'm moving through it like this i'm not i'm not because he's very acutely aware of not of trying not to put something out there and mystifying it and then acting like all surprised that he discovers it later. Like he's, he, I think he's very aware of that being a 
problem of like philosophy as such. Yeah. And, yeah. and, and he wants to be very, very clear. This is how thought works. And so then we go to this, the, we go to the Stoics and it's like, look, this is a clear reaction to this, this dialectic, this, like this dynamic that has played out like for a very, very long time. Right. And like, right. and it's like, this is these, these are, this is a consequence of recognition in a situation that would seem to be completely unequal. Um, and the, like, so what I want to show Hegel, like the independence of thought, how this emerges here. And then also we can't, it, it, but it can't just be thought by itself. Right. And the Stoics right. have this problem. Yeah. Because he, it, it, he, it, yeah, yeah. I think this is the philosophy he hates the most. <laughs> I have to say. Yeah. Cause, cause it's funny because, there's a way in which he himself is such a so so invested in thinking, right? So, mm-hmm. and what what thought can do, what philosophy can do. You would think maybe it's because of this, you know, the narcissism of small differences. Maybe he thinks sure, stoicism yeah. is too close. But I, I mean, what I think is great about Hegel's thought is it's always about are you proving yourself in the deed? Like mm-hmm. I'm going to look at your philosophy and see what it gives us, what mm-hmm. what the deed that it gives us, and so. What he hates about Stoicism is precisely this retreat into the internal and finding freedom in this complete rejection of the external, right? And this, he even says, doesn't he say something like, it's the philosophy of princes and slaves, right? Like, yeah, uh, yeah. That, that Marcus Aurelius and Epictetus, like, they, they can, they, they both equally can be Stoics because there's no, the external is nothing. And then his critique, mm-hmm. though, is that, the only content that the Stoic has is the external that they think is nothing, right? Like yeah, the, because, right, right, right. Because what is the content of, of their thought? It's just, it's, they say, like, what's their ethic? Just think. And he's like, they never tell you what to think about. And yeah, so, yeah. And so the only thing you can fill that thought with is the thing that's supposed to be inessential, the external. And so that's the, this negation of everything external nonetheless, and this is the contradiction of Stoicism, nonetheless relies on the external to give it a content. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, and th- and like, isn't this like such a huge, I mean, I think this is why eventually he talks, it, like he'll he'll make the um, the religious comparison between the three positions that, that he aligns of, yeah. of uh, Stoicism, skepticism, and unhappy consciousness. But like, it's, Stoicism for hundreds of years, I, like I want to say like really won out yeah. As not just not just during the like the Roman Empire, but like the the uh, in um like if you read like old English, you know Beowulf or you know anything uh like uh, for a very long time the like uh, the pop well, one of the more popular like intellectual positions that you're gonna find in, in you know in these things that we that we have uh, existing is uh, a, a position of contemptus mundi right like a right. like a contempt right. for earth like the and, and and not not literally in like an environmental way but just like a rejection of worldly things and so the the difference there of course is and I, Hegel d- does get to this uh like is that like well we reject the external because there's a higher external there's a, there's a beyond that's that's the real thing so the world is just base and meaningless because the real meaning is this beyond in 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 heaven and and that and but it's what it's really fascinating in old old english text because you have cuz you have this smashing of like a pagan tradition in with like england being uh, becoming christianized so like it's 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 a like um 
I don't know. Beowulf is just interesting for this reason. He's like he's a it's a he's a pagan warlord basically, but he uh like it it his it becomes like a, a story of like a it's like a, it becomes a very Christian Christianized kind of story. Like anyway, this this is I think what like like a core to dominant like philosophy like hundreds of years of dominant philosophy that like hegel is trying to to get at is that like you cannot have this this position of canceling all that is and also like rely on it or even i i think um rely on uh, a beyond that only means something because it's greater than what you've canceled Right. You know what I'm saying? Right. Like, 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 like heaven is great because oh, we don't have all these like petty earthly problems. It's like, well, you're still, you're still stuck in this then. You're right. still relying right. on this for the value right. of the other right. thing. I mean, you haven't I, told me about that. I think you're so right that it triumphs after the, like even after Rome and all through, I mean, the whole, isn't the, this, this retreat into the monastery precisely the stoic? Yeah. I agree. Yeah. 100%. I mean, it's the I stoic ideal, you know, and I, I love, there's this little part, I think it's in, History of philosophy, where he talks about monks, mm-hmm. and 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 he says something like, um, he calls monks a set of melancholy specimens, <laughs> and, <laughs> and I think it's pretty great. Like he he thinks that they, he he says they they have this they have a lamb like gentleness, mm-hmm. but they never try to hazard the universal, you know. And so mm-hmm. he thinks that that monkish world is just cowardly. And it mm-hmm. doesn't try to ever manifest itself in something, you know. And, and this retreat, yeah. this stoical retreat, he thinks is just the he. I, I just think he just has the utmost contempt for it. And I, you know, I have to say I agree because I, I have some friends and ex friends that that claim to be stoics, and they, they, you know, they they let all these terrible things happen around them. Mm. And they don't do anything because it's part of their stoical ethic to just retreat into the, into the self, you know. And I, 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 I think like, look, just do something, like, like yeah. stop this from happening. But no, no, like no activity. So I think that I, I mean, I think that's what's exasperating for Hegel, mm. like that. And I think that's what he identifies with Stoicism, that monkish retreat from any action. And skepticism goes further. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. So skepticism, you can see how it results from Stoicism, because in a certain way, and this is always his point, that Stoicism gets involved in this contradiction, that it it devalues the external world, but the external world gives it its only content, right? Mm-hmm. That's the mm-hmm. Stoical contradiction. Then skepticism says, okay, we're going to solve that contradiction by making the external world totally unknown, it doesn't matter. So, <laughs> so in other words, I think Hegel says something like skepticism takes what for Stoicism was a pretense and realizes it, okay. right? So, so the, the external world is just unreal for the, and so what's, okay, so then I think this is a kind of, and I think Hegel has some respect for skepticism, but the problem with it, and it's interesting because I wonder to what extent he's thinking about Hume here, because he, hmm. he think, you know, because, so Hume would be, have been the most famous modern skeptic that Hegel would have, you know, had any interact or any, any, any sense of, right? Any understanding of. And, and I think the, the idea, the problem of skepticism, isn't it this problem that you, you doubt everything it's the Except, argument sketch right. from Monty Python. Right, right, exactly. It's not just saying, no, it isn't. Yes, it is. No, it isn't. Like, <laughs> yeah, that's... But you don't yeah. doubt your own 
capacity to doubt, right? And that's mm-hmm, the problem. Mm-hmm. And so, so there's this, this that for Hegel is the fundamental ki- case of skepticism, and, mm-hmm. or the fundamental contradiction of skepticism, that it has this fundamental duality in itself where part of it is this universal of understanding that, that, there, that everything has to be negated. And then there's this, he thinks that there's also this, this other part, which is utterly, what would you call it? Just contingent, singular mm-hmm. individual, just constantly saying no, just like exactly like the Monty Python sketch. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it, it, it's, it's, um, it's also a refusal of the, uh, it's an acknowledgement of the split, but in like a, you know, a manic. It's actually it's funny. He doesn't does he does he not talk of like Manichaean dualism because that that would seem to fit into this. Maybe this is he doesn't. But I think you're right to to bring that up. Right, like it's. I mean, he thinks of it as like. Uh, I think he compares it to like a child who says, "If you say one thing, the child always just says no. It's not the other. Yeah, thing, right. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. And that's well, yeah, because it's it's these um. It's funny because these ideas, stoicism and skepticism, acknowledge a split but they it's a it's a whole it's a as i like to put it right w-h-o-l-e split right between person and like between self and and world and and like one is meaningless and the other is complete so there's not it's not a it's not a split within there's is we're not looking at we're not looking at a divided subject we're looking at a divide between like kind of like a like a whole perfect subject and then like like a just like a world that's meaningless or inessential right and, right and, and then and, and then that's the error right that is the error but then that's what's corrected by unhappy consciousness right because right. unhappy consciousness apprehends the duality as within yes. so it has within itself this transient meaningless what you just called this meaningless part and then mm-hmm. this permanent meaningful other part right like mm-hmm. that so that duality is there within unhappy consciousness, unlike, I think you're right to say, like both stoicism and skepticism are still playing with the duality. One is internal and the other is external. But here, unhappy, so I know, I know my own, my, my teacher of, from graduate school, Walter Mac Davis, he, he thinks unhappy consciousness is the real end point of the phenomenology. He thinks everything everything comes after (laughs) is just crap for him. Like I I once, I once was staying at his, at his house uh, for a semester, like he was on sabbatical or something. Mm -hmm. And I, you know, he had all his books were still there. And and I, I picked up, I I said, I'll just look through his phenomenology. So, so it got writing all over like, Hegel, you're fucked, all this stuff, all throughout, all throughout. (laughs) And then I get to, I get, I, so I read through unhappy conscious. I'm just looking through. And then I turn the next page to reason. There's just not a, there's not a, not a word on it. So there's just no, so, I mean, he had read it obviously probably in a different edition or whatever, but yeah. in this book, all there was, there was just writing up till unhappy consciousness and then just zero. There were a whole rest that of the book. That's so funny. <laughs> and, but, you know, I think, I think you can see it because his idea is that any attempt to overcome this fundamental melancholic, sick uh structure of subjectivity is a is a lie like and mm. so that's why he uh, he ended that at the point but so i mean what hegel would say and i think it's interesting because i think uh my my professor was mac now my good friend he he uh his i think he's very close to kierkegaard and i think what's interesting mm-hmm. about this section is that it's a critique of kierkegaard when kierkegaard 
was just uh, was just a little. Even if he was born, I, I'm not. I'm not sure the exact date he was born. But he was, as you you once said to me, he's in diapers at best, right? <laughs> diapers. Well, well, he's indicting him in the womb uh, before he's even had a chance to think. I'll look. I'll look it up. I'll, if, 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 but um, yeah. So how how is this an indictment of Kierkegaard? So so uh, yeah, he wasn't born yet. Um, oh, okay, you looked it up. Right. I just looked it up. Yeah. So before so he was, uh, you know what? It's even more of an owning because before he was a glint, before Kierkegaard was a glint in the mailman's eye, uh, the, the he was he was owning his philosophy. That's right. That's right. So 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 it is in this sense. So Kierkegaard's, I, I think I think unhappy consciousness is the position of Kierkegaard because mm-hmm. he sees this fundamental split between the impermanent, and what Hegel calls here the unchangeable. There's different translations of it, but it's really the relationship between the lowly human and the figure of God insofar as God is internalized, right? And so that, mm-hmm. and, and that's what Kierkegaard basically describes as the nature of existence. So his existentialism has its basis in, in precisely the structure that Hegel's describing here, but Hegel is going to show how this structure itself is, and it, to, to return to a psychoanalytic term, it's hysterical. I think that that's mm. his position, that, okay. that unhappy consciousness is hysterical and in love with its own unhappiness, right? Mm. Like that, well, I think this, yeah, go ahead. I was going to say, what would Max say about that? Uh, I don't know. I've often called him hysterical and, 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 <laughs> in a nice kind of way, but yeah. um, he just, what he would say is, I think his 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 rebuttal is that that any attempt to get out of that position mm-hmm. requires a turn to a occupying a, a position that's actually unavailable to us. So okay. he thinks the position. So he might even say, "Okay, whatever. Maybe it, you would call it hysterical, but that really is the authentic subjective position because you can never have access to the position that Hegel thinks you come to in reason." So, so I think he, so. He doesn't I, think he doesn't think the. the um, that's interesting, but do, doesn't that mean? I, I'm, I'm sure you talked to him about this, but doesn't that mean that you? I think one has to, one has to reject sublation, and spirit. I think to to certify that view. Yeah, I think right? he does. I think he does. Yeah. Like I think okay. he thinks that. I think he thinks that you know that that at a certain. What Hegel thinks of as spirit is mm-hmm. a is a, a a false collectivization of the mm-hmm. isolated individual subject, right? Like I don't think he okay. thinks that there is. So it's a very Sartrean in that. In yeah, that yeah, yeah, yeah. I and mean, he's very he's very indebted to existentialism and, and okay. Kierkegaard and Sartre. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Mm-hmm. So so you know, I have immense respect for this position. I think it's yeah, really yeah. good, but I I just think. In the end, and and I, to be to be fair to him, like he's he read my book on Hegel, and and you know I I I wonder if it's possible to be influenced by a student, but he claims that he <laughs> he was he's 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 been nicer to Hegel since then. But his oh, his book nice. on this is called Inwardness and Existence. If anyone's interested in it, I think it's well worth your time to read. I think the chapter on Hegel is is, and I think he would say this too, is the weakest because. You know, it was written before Zizek wrote anything and before this whole new understanding of Hegel came about. So mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I think that has to be, uh, you know, Taking to be fair to him. Yeah, you yeah. should take that into account. But anyway, so what what Hegel's critique of this is, is that you have this unchangeable, which is the essential within, and then you have the the lowly, impermanent, 
subject also, right? And so they're relating to each other within, this relation occurs within subjectivity. So there's this constant negation of the lowly singular, right? In mm-hmm. the face of this, of, of, of this essential unchanging. And, but the problem is you can never get rid of that lowly singular because it's essential. It's part of the essential, right? So like that mm-hmm. you can't think the one without the other, that you need this unity. You need this, you need the limited or the finite within this unchangeable. And so that's the problem. And so the, this, the, the, Hegel thinks you have to get a way to kind of reconcile those two together, right? Yeah, no, it's interesting because I, I think this is exactly the um, the the I, th- this is what what I was leading to like a few minutes ago when I was saying like this is the Christian position that right. develops as the solution for like just like uh, what what does it add to contemptus mundi, right? It's like it oh there oh there's a beyond, but if you right. found it, I mean. It wouldn't be right, like it would right, be, right, exactly, no, exactly, right, yeah. exactly. Like if you found the beyond, it wouldn't be a beyond, and so you get this perpetual struggle, and you get a position that's in love with its own unhappiness. Yeah, and Mac yeah. hates it when I say this to him as a critique. Like you love <laughs> your own misery, yeah. and and he absolutely hates that. And and I think, but I think that is the critique of this of this position of, I mean, that's Hegel's critique of unhappy conscious. And I think it's the psychoanalytic critique of hysteria, right? Like Mm -hmm, you're in mm -hmm. love with your own dissatisfaction. That's what, that's what you come to analysis trying to discover, I think. Right. And so, (laughs) so the one, but the one way that I think you're right to, so right to suggest Christianity, I mean, Hegel even talks about it explicitly here. And I think the one way that it, that it does work itself out is through this figure of the mediator. And so this is where Mm -hmm. he, and it's 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 the it's I think the Christian priest, right? Like that's mm, what he's talking yeah. about. So the the way to the way to to try to the only way to connect with this unchangeable is through the something that can mediate the relation for me. So that can I can't nice. I can't get to that myself. And the mediator is the priest for Hegel. Yeah, that's that's pretty good. So um, and then I mean this is of course what what leads into the um, to the, the reason section, but basically like you there. And again, this isn't so like what Hegel's kind of saying here, just to go back to the point where like, he's not, he's not advancing his own philosophy. He's telling you like, this is, this is how it is. I'm like, this is, this is the, right. this is the way thought works. I'm just telling you about it is like, he's kind of saying that, no, not kind of, he's saying that the, like the, the priest as mediate uh, as mediator, like it is inevitable. That right, like if right. if this is how thought is if this is how thought is structured if what you're moving through is like um like a like a complete a complete contempt of of the world and then you need the world for you know for for the self to have any kind of solidity but then okay we're gonna move forward from that and we have this like complete this complete uh, cancellation of all that is, I'm still relying on it. Well then like what kind of uh, satisfaction is there? Like, ah, it is that there is a beyond, but also that we will never get there. So like what kind of uh, satisfaction is there? And that becoming organized in like in religion, like the, the, the position of the priest makes sense of that whole thing. Is that like, like, like that you need this position to lay out the ground rules for 
um, like, yes, there is this, there is this beyond. How do you get there? Right. And now, and now you've had, now there's like, I think, um, probably in a, a future podcast, I don't know if in the reason one would be a place to do this, that like, I know I like, it's a common, uh, you might've actually mentioned this in the preface that like there, there, there are a lot of groups of like Hegelian critics who, you know, think he's like, uh, either too authoritarian or not authoritarian enough or like too religious or not religious enough. Right. Like, so like right. the position of religion is, uh, like is not, is not one without it's like it's, it's fraughtness. And then of course there is the, I do think that like spirit needs to be thought of as having a religious valence, but not like an organized religious. Yeah. It's a tough one. Yeah. Valence. I agree. Yeah. I tell, I tell like the way you said that. I agree with yeah. you about that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, the priest, it's interesting, isn't it? That the priest is actually for Hegel, the figure that becomes reason. <laughs> and that's, yeah, I know. it's I so know. strange, yeah. like, because we think of the priest as a figure of unreason, I think. So, yes. it's, but I think yeah. what's interesting about for Hegel, the priest is that, idea of mediation, right? Like that me mm-hmm. that mediating between the infinite and the finite. Right. And that and with and that the mediation actually is what's revelatory. And so mm-hmm. and I think that's and you can see I think how that becomes reason because the the like that the mediation between the subject and the world, once you understand the way in which mediation functions, that's how that's how reason functions, right? Like, yeah. like to understand, like reason is just saying everything is mediated. Mm-hmm. That's what, I mean, I think that is the under, that is what, when you get to reason, that's what you've recognized. And so that's why he thinks that this, this end point of the beautiful, sorry, the beautiful, <laughs> I almost said unhappy <laughs> conscious and beautiful soul that's are funny. very similar, but, um, yeah. mm-hmm. but, but uh, the, this end point of unhappy consciousness is, reason because that's mm-hmm. the point at which you recognize that that mediation cannot be there's nothing without mediation that everything yeah. is mediated and once you get to that point then you see the entire world as the result of the subject's deed and it it loses its independence and that's the, i think the really key point that 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 the mm-hmm. world at this point ceases to be something independent and you get through that to that point through unhappy consciousness. Yeah, no, that's excellent. And also I think a key, uh, Deridian thing, just to go back to a a figure in the background of this, right? Like, like the, the, I mean, his emphasis is, is very different, but like the, the impossibility of like a, like a close contact that is something like, like a complete contact or like immersion, I think is something that like Derrida is very, like he's he thinks about he's and, and, and I think he owes it right to, right right to I, I, absolutely yeah. absolutely yeah. right like like I think this notion that there's nothing outside of mediation I think Derrida mm-hmm. is really that's really important for Derrida yeah that's nice there is no outside text there's nothing outside mediation right. that's a, that's a right. nice gloss I like that yeah. um yeah 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 um and that I think uh do we have do we have a final word I think it's a pretty good I, I, yeah, I think like the, I think that wouldn't it be like uh, the lesson is watch Lady from Shanghai maybe right? again or listen to the Water Boys you know listen to the like, Water Boys yeah that's a good <laughs> yeah you can I think uh, or maybe let's let's say let's let's say maybe the lesson is to read Inwardness in Existence I think that's ah, worth uh, yeah that's nice yeah okay <laughs> all right over and out nice. Ryan over and out Todd.